Amen. So just to rehash a few things Pierre said, um, we are, they are remodeling this room, so sort of a good news, bad news situation. Uh, we'll get to enjoy a nice remodeled auditorium at some point. Uh, the bad news is that we'll have to meet in the cafeteria uh, for the weeks, for the Sundays and Wednesdays from here on out until they're done. So uh, We do have a park service next Sunday, so we'll be at the park for that. But moving forward, we'll be in the cafeteria uh, for Sundays and, and for Wednesdays for those that are curious. Also, the library is closed for the summer for different reasons, but we have the adjacent classrooms here for the kids. Uh, so that'll be we're kind of working on that and figuring that out, but that's the plan uh, as we move forward. Also, yes, Sharon did ask for uh, more help for children's ministry for midweeks uh, for the immediate rotation coming up. If we don't have any volunteers, the kids are going to have to be uh, in service with us. So if you have not served yet or you'd like to serve or you just want to avert a disaster, uh, please uh, volunteer with Sharon on Wednesdays. Uh, we need some extra, some extra help. So amen. Hop over to Genesis chapter 22. It's, uh, we're taking a, a deviation from our compelled series uh, here. I do have extra compelled uh, handouts in the back as well as invitations for our summer campaign compelled. Um, there we go. So we're going to take a break from that, though. It is nice to know that. Uh, last week was on Compelled to Love. If you missed out on last week's challenges, this week's kind of a you know, chance to uh, recuperate or regain, regain some, um, some compelled points, as it were. So if you did, if you did not pick a, a love passage to memorize from last week, hey, amen, tomorrow. Tomorrow's Monday. Memory Scripture Monday. Go ahead and grab one tomorrow and, and start bearing it in your heart. And so this week we'll do a Father's Day week. Uh, and then next week we'll pick back up with the normal schedule for the Compelled series. Um, but today for a Father's Day sermon, a Father's Day lesson, uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, and so Father's Day is a, a great day. My, actually, my, my father-in-law is here, Ron, and my mother-in-law, Teddy. They came down to help us with um, our move. So uh, our move did go well yesterday, thanks to all those who helped. Um, I learned that, that Larry Dorrier is a machine, man. <laughs> So I guess what comes along with being a Dorier is not just not, not, not being super expressive with emotion, but also that you don't, you don't show when you feel pain because Larry was just, a, he was a, a machine out there, man. I was like looking for him, like, is he going to show any kind of weakness here? But he didn't. Just kept moving stuff and grabbing it, brought a trailer, stayed. I mean, uh, so thanks to the brothers and Larry, I aspire to be you, um, you know, uh, one day. So uh, thanks to everyone who helped move. Thanks to everyone who went to I Was Hungry to help deliver food. Uh, if, you missed, if you missed out on your chance to help us move and really want to help somebody else move, there's going to be lots of opportunities for that in the next few weeks. So just um, be ready to jump at the opportunity to serve. I know we have several people who need some help. Uh, Genesis chapter 22 is probably one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament. Um, it is fraught with problems, say problems, uh, from an academic perspective. We studied this out in my Old Testament class in college, uh, and people don't like it. And you probably may not like it as we read it. But uh, it's an awesome passage. We're going to look at why. Some of the passages that, that people in the world see as problematic are actually some of the greatest and deepest and richest in the Bible. It just doesn't necessarily mesh well with our current worldview. Uh, and so Genesis chapter 22 uh, is a story of a father. And we're going to look at uh, a father today and talk about the ultimate father, um, God. Uh, this is a picture of a man and his daughter riding a bike here. Uh, but something I just wanted to, even, I was thinking about what does it really mean to be a dad? And I kept coming across the same kind of, um, the same major purpose of fatherhood, which is uh, to provide. I think most men feel that way, at least about themselves, is, hey, I need to provide. 
Uh, I got to provide and men feel better about themselves. I know I feel better about myself in general when I provide. Okay, I provide whether it's money or a, a time or buying things. I love to buy things for others. Not, you know, not so much for myself as much, but I love to buy things for people. And my dad does the same. And, you know, we're kind of, we, like we like to provide. And I remember my dad growing up was so good at this and, you know, at providing. And every time there was a problem, you know, dad was going to fix it. Um, and sometimes he stayed up all night and, you know, I could hear him in the next room uh, talking to nobody about how he was trying to fix it um, with a little bit of frustration, perhaps. But he always fixed it, uh, you know, and always got it done. And if there was a problem, dad was there to be able to take care of it. You know, when I totaled the minivan on the way to prom, dad was there to take care of it. Um, and so there's, that's a great story uh, for another time. But uh, there's a lot of different times, you know, when, when my dad would swoop in and he would, he would take care of things. And uh, that's what dads do. That's, what, that's what, what makes dads awesome. Dads love to provide. Uh, and as we jump into the text here in Genesis 22, uh, we're going to look at why this command that God gives Abraham is so you know, difficult. Because it does seem to go against that natural inclination of what it really means to be a father, which is to provide. That the command that God will give Abraham actually seems to be the opposite. To destroy, to slaughter, to not provide. Uh, and so that, for us, rails against our um, definitions of what it really means to be a great parent. So in Genesis 22, verse 1, we'll start reading. The title of my lesson today is Because I Said So. Uh, you know, if you, yeah, I don't know, it's a parent thing, right? You know, why, why? Because I said so. That's why. Because I said so. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 22. Sometime later, I got three words in before I have to provide some background. So what's going on here? Sometime later after what? Well, the chapter preceding this is a very difficult one for Abraham um, because uh, it's, once again, a good news, bad news situation. The good news is, is that his wife is finally, finally, finally pregnant. Uh, and, and that's a miracle that you know, they've, they've been praying for and has been answered uh, in the birth of their son, Isaac. Uh, the difficulty with that is that Abraham has another son, Isaac's half-brother, Ishmael. And Abraham is put in a very difficult position for any father, which is to, he was asked to kick his son out, uh, to expel his son, Ishmael, um, and his mother, Ishmael's mother, Hagar, from his presence. Um, and the Bible tells us in chapter 21, this is a very difficult decision for Abraham. Uh, and any father who's asked to expel the child for any reason, it's a very difficult decision. And so verse 1 picks up with sometime later after that event. Okay, So sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So a burnt offering uh, was the most common type of offering in the Old Testament. It's a sacrifice. And what you had to do when every firstborn son had to have actually a substitute offering for themselves um, and you'll see this again in Exodus with the firstborn as, uh, as they leave Exodus and the lambs that are slaughtered. But the idea is, is that every one of us deserves hell. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us needs something to take on our sins. 
And so you'd have a, a, a substitute offering. And a burnt offering was the most common type. Uh, you would slaughter the animal, and then you would burn the animal, and the animal would be wholly consumed in fire. And this was pretty common. This was normal. But the idea is, is that uh, flesh must pay for flesh. Blood must pay for blood. We have sinned. We can't just pretend it's, it's going off into the air. That sin has to actually be transpossessed into somebody else. It has to actually go on to somebody else. Someone must pay for your sin. I've used this example a lot, uh, but if you wreck the car, right, like I did on, on prom night so many years ago, uh, you know, somebody's got to pay. That's why we have insurance folks, right? Somebody's got to pay. Either I pay, they pay, or some combination of both. But I've made a mistake. I've transgressed. Somebody must pay. The question is who? And so that's what we're talking about here. But when Abraham hears the command, now imagine this, that you've, you've, you've been praying for years to have a child. God allows you to have this miraculous kid. Now God commits, uh, challenges you or commands you to go commit child sacrifice. This is not something that is normal at all in the Bible. This is the only time in the entire Bible where God tests an individual. This is the only time where we see God command child sacrifice. So what in the world is going on here? Why here? Why now? Why would God test him? Isn't he God? Doesn't he sort of know his heart? Can't he just like, you know, zoom in, you know, like zoom in like on an iPad into the heart and kind of check out diagnostics and then zoom back out? Like, you know, why does he have to go through this test? Why does he have to put Abraham through this test? And why kill someone that's innocent? Why kill poor innocent Isaac? It just, there's so many questions, right? It's just too much. And all as we read it, we're like, ah, I don't like this one. I don't want to even keep going. There must be a way out. And imagine, this, and now I, I, Abraham's not so removed from our own perspective now. He's probably feeling and thinking the same things we are. There's got to be a way out. This can't be what God wants me to really do. This, what's, the, what, what's, what's the catch? And so as we read, we're actually going to see Abraham respond this way in verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham loaded up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I go with the boy. Interesting, with the boy, not not Isaac. He doesn't name him. Perhaps he's trying to dissociate himself from what he knows is about to happen. Stay here with the donkey while I go over there with the boy. We will worship and then we'll come back. How are you going to come back with your son? So, you know, Abraham's wrestling. He's like, somehow we're going to be okay. I don't know how yet, but somehow we will. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, or said to his uh, father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Oh. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. Wow. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham! Abraham! Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God 
Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. I think Abraham's aware that he has one son, but God keeps reminding him, (laughs) your son. Oh, your only son. Oh, your son whom you love. It's like, ah, every time you say it, it's like another, ah, it's so painful. Why? But Abraham looked up in verse 13 and saw there in the thicket a ram caught by its horns. He went over to the ram, took it, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Wow. What in the world are we going to do with this one? How are we going to go home? How are we going to go to Father's Day lunch after that, Drew? Come on. How am I going to have a blooming onion with that on my heart and that on my mind? It's just going to be crazy. Because I said so, you know, first thing I want to talk about is the unimaginable test. The unimaginable test. You know, we talked about fathers really wanting to provide. And here Abraham's given a command. You know, we're given commands as disciples. We're given commands in the Bible. Very explicit, clear commands, right? Do not give up meeting together. Uh, Deny yourself. Carry your cross. Forgive one another as God forgave you. I mean, there's lots of commands in the Bible, right? We're given commands just as Abraham was. But there's a couple problems with the command that Abraham gets. There's two big ones. You know, God is testing him to see if he really loves him with all his heart, strength, mind, and soul. And there's this great tension in the passage of, will Abraham do it? Will he really do it? Will Abraham really choose God over what he loves, who he loves, more than anything in this world? Will Abraham come through? You know, and he, there's two big problems with this. When we're given a command, we usually have, there's two things that go through our mind. You ready for this? One is, what's in it for me? All right? What's the incentive? Why? You want me to read my Bible every day? Why? Tell me why. What's, what's in it for me? Oh, you'll, you'll learn and you'll grow and you'll be able to really know the scriptures better. Why should I pray? It'll help you feel better. Why should I be pure? Oh, because you don't have to go through the pain of sex addiction. Why should I not date people, you know, anybody I want? Why should I only date a Christian? Well, because, you know, we give all these answers, right? And those answers aren't necessarily bad answers. Are they wrong answers? No, there are benefits to these things. But what's amazing about this passage, this command, there is no incentive. No caveat, no asterisk. No, by the way, this horrible thing I'm commanding you to do There's a a light at the end of the tunnel. It's going to be okay. You're going to kill your son, but you know what? I'm going to give you six more sons. Or, you know what? I'm going to be able to take away this thing that's been ailing you. There is no incentive here. The other thing about commands that we struggle with is we want to know the logic of it. We want to really be okay. And it takes us a while, right? And uh, when we read commands in the Bible, it takes us a while to really kind of digest it. Like, can I really... Do this. How would I do it? The logic of doing it, right? Uh, for those of us who are not disciples today, you know, teenagers, this is a big, a big struggle. For teens, it's like you're really weighing this choice of, do I really want to become a disciple? And here's the logic of it. And even these, these people who are older than me keep buying me things and taking me out, and they really want me to kind of become a disciple. But I don't really know if I want to. And you really kind of weigh it with the logic of it, of what's really in it for me. What's in it for me? You know, in a big church... There's lots of benefits to becoming a Christian. For me, I had a big, awesome, fun team ministry. Everyone was a disciple. I had to struggle with the temptation of becoming a disciple just because everyone else was. Um, and so did everyone else in my team ministry. It was a big peer pressure thing. We had a lot of struggles with that, right? But I had to think, what's in it for me? If I, be, if I become a disciple, then I'll be able to hang out with these guys more, right? If I uh, do this or do that, people will accept me more. 
And we really want incentives. We really want to know the logic of what we're doing. And uh, we don't like this one. We don't like blind faith. We don't like the challenges that come along with it. Imagine if someone gave you a challenge today or a command after service. You know, you're in fellowship and uh, the guy says, hey, listen, um, come to my house and mow my lawn every day this week. All right, I got to go. Bye. Would you do it? Would you tell somebody about it? Would you pray about it? What would you do just for fun? I mean, some of us maybe would say, I would do it just because, you know, you have to obey. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Some of us might say, I'm not doing that. They're not God. I don't have to obey them. I only obey what I, who I want to obey. You know, it kind of is a little trivial of a situation. It's a trivial situation, but it kind of shows our hearts toward how we deal with commands and how we deal with obedience. How do you feel about obedience? You know, fathers want to provide, right? Some of us had different types of parents growing up, though. Some of us had helicopter parents. Parents that were very involved in our lives. Some of you are helicopter parents, by the way. But some of you had helicopter parents. You're very involved in your child's life. You know, you're very, very involved with, with everything that they do. Very much so. Now, that kid grows up, and what do they think? They think that, oh, mom and dad are always going to take care of everything. And they don't do too well, right, when they go to the real world. It's a struggle because they haven't, they haven't had to, to deal with it, grow up with it, or... or and so they're very reliant on others. They tend to be codependent. They tend to kind of um, be more naive. Now, people who had absentee parents tend to be more self-reliant. And they tend to be more, I'll fix it. Mom, mom wasn't there. Dad wasn't there, so I'll do it. I'll fix it. You can't help me. You can't tell me what they don't trust people with a lot of mistrust. They, don't, they, don't, they, don't, they tend not to trust people as much because they, they felt let down early in life. So why would I trust people now? And we can kind of view in this way, we can view uh, God in the same way. We can view and have our relationship with God kind of in the same way. But even as we talk about what this challenge here really gets into, why God really commits this challenge, this just blows up every expectation we have of what it really means to be a father. Now, even me saying this right now, if I were just to even pretend to put yourself in Abraham's shoes, just pretend. I know it's dangerous. God asks you to kill your niece, your nephew, your daughter, your son. You know, and what's great about it, it's not like do it in 10 minutes. He says, there's a mountain three days away. Go there and do it. So God gives him some time. And the agony of it, like the travel. And you can even tell that Abraham's struggling when it says, uh, I think what verse is it here? When he says in verse, thir- verse 3, it says, early he got up the next morning, loaded his donkey, he got the servants, and then he cut the wood. Now, the vav repetition in Hebrew suggests um, sequence. So he does things out of order. He loads the donkey, then he cuts the wood. So two options. Either he's just so bemused, he's so overwhelmed, he's doing things out of order, he's, he's cutting the wood last, which is not what you would do last. Or he's saving what's probably the most difficult part of the preparations for last. He knows that I'm going to keep putting this off and maybe God will come in and give me a solution. But you can tell that Abraham, as a father, he's struggling with this. He's not robotic. He's not saying, well, sure, I'll go kill my son. Right. The text is littered with little hints that we get. That Abraham is looking for a way out of here. He's looking. You know, what do I do? He actually stops calling his son Isaac at some point in the narrative and starts calling him boy or lad. Uh, Perhaps he's trying to dissociate himself. Perhaps he's trying to prepare himself for what's coming up next. 
you know, he is struggling big time with these, this task. It's not just a moral struggle, because it is primarily a moral struggle, like child sacrifice, that doesn't seem like God, but it's also a theological struggle. And this is also big for us as well, because God, for like the several past few chapters, has been promising Abraham that he will bless him through whom? Through Isaac. God has a plan, and that plan is heavily dependent on Isaac. And God has been telling me the plan over and over with great specificity, this plan that goes through Isaac. And now, God, you come in and you give me a new plan, one that is not just incredibly difficult for a father, one that is unimaginable for a father to go through, but now one that is challenging everything you've told me already. It, is, it, it, make, it makes God appear deceptive, and you know, conniving and self-contradictory. And it's, this is the wrestling that Abraham has to go through. And this is the nutshell of all of our struggles with commands. Does God really have my best in mind? Is God consistent? Will God back himself up? Will God change his mind? Will God see what I've done and reward me? Will God give up on me? All things we feel with our fathers. Is my father really going to be there? Does my father really love me? You know, one of the few things, you know, in my life, you know, I'm, I have a very close relationship with my dad. If I could be half the man my father was, I'd be a great father. You know, I, I honor, respect my dad big time. But my dad has an amazing power. My dad, with just a few words, can destroy me quicker than, almost, besides Jenny, anybody else. <laughs> and, but he can also build me up better, which just, I'm proud of you. Just those words from dad are like, the rest, I got three weeks of fuel right there. I'm like, oh, I'm good. Dad's proud of me. But if even just a little hint that dad, I disappointed my father. It, I mean, Jenny can tell you it crushes me. And I feel it. And I get downcast and sad. You know, we have very close relationships with our dads. Uh, and if we don't, we still have the same emotion. It's just in a different way. And if our dads weren't as great as they could have been, it's okay. We still have this. We're made to really crave and connect with a father figure. We are made. In the same way we had that lesson on motherly love, God is both male and female. God is, is, is both has male and female in him. Uh, we use you know, him because Hebrews got that you know, uh, gender part of the language, uh, which like a lot of languages do. But God's no more male than he is female. God's outside of sex. And so when God even has, he has these strengths as a maternal figure, he also has strengths as a paternal figure. And our heart really craves both. Our heart craves for both. And we actually, we crave for that, that uh, those few words from dad, right? From our heavenly father. I'm proud of you. Well done, good and faithful servant. But I'm disappointed in you. Uh, you could have done better. All those things, right? It's like, oh man, we want to hear that from dad. But what happens when dad gives you an outrageous command? A crazy one. And we struggle in the same way. You know, this is a, a really exaggerated command. But I, if we can just... Take that away for a second. We can almost read something like this and say, what a crazy story, but not apply it to ourselves. And we can't do that today, man. We got to actually say, no, there's a point to all this. And we actually do the same thing in just a miniature fashion with the commands given us every day, every week. We do the same thing. And a lot of times we will actually write off commands. We won't do them if there's no apparent incentive. We won't do it. Never give up meeting together as long as it is called today. So you won't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, Hebrews 3.12. We read that. We're still not at midweek. We still don't go to Youth and Family Devo. We still don't go to Yo Pro Big Question Nights. Why not? Well, 
it's just too hard. It's not enough of it. It's not that fun. Or uh, it's kind of early after work or late before work or whatever, right? Not enough incentive for me. Sorry, not doing it. Forgive each other as I forgave you. Well, I don't know if you know what she did. If I forgive her, she'll just hurt me again. There's not enough incentive. If I forgive, what's in it for me? And we think this way about everything. And our discipleship just becomes like us begging each other and trying to like manufacture enough incentive just to love God. If you can get enough free stuff, if you can, you know, if you, if you just follow God, your kid will grow up and he'll be amazing. She'll actually, she'll be a disciple one day if you just do these things. And now God's promises are things to cling on to. Okay. But I just want to challenge us for a second to really get into why. Are you okay with God if he says, because I said so? Would you be okay with that? I love that my parents said that when I was a kid. I, don't, I didn't love it at the time. I love it now. And I asked my parents why. I think it was my parents that said this. But they said, because your kids have to understand it. They don't, they don't need to have a reason for everything. You need to teach your kids that obedience is enough. They don't need to have a reason. Because dad said so is more than enough of a reason. The question is, is do you trust dad? If you trust the person giving the command, you'll obey. If you love them, if you respect them, it doesn't matter what the command is. You'll obey. Uh, we, we were spanked a fair amount as kids, sort of in ascending order. My sister, the least, I came in second. And then my brother, really, he took the, took the cup, man. He was just, he was the spanking champion. A uh, few memories of my brother without spanking attached um, as a kid. But, uh, you know, amen. He's a great guy. You guys have met him. He's at my wedding. Best man. Great guy, John Mark. If you're listening, um, I love you. But he was spanked quite a bit, right? But most of the times that we were spanked was because we didn't obey. And not just because we didn't obey, we didn't obey the first time. You know, you gotta, kids need to learn. It's okay. You don't have to always know why. Because here's the thing. You won't always know why. I don't always know why. People ask me, Drew, you're a minister. You, you know all these things. You know Hebrew. You know Greek. You know it well enough. And you know these things. How about answer this really hard question for me? Give me an answer. A lot of times, I don't know the answer. I can give you my best thought. I've read some books on it. I can give you a perspective. But we don't have to know the answer. We just got to know God. You don't have to know all the answers because then your, your God is just going to be you and your logic. Your God is not God if you have to know all the answers. It's just you. You're following you. And you've deemed it worthy to be able to now follow. This is really about us trusting, loving, and respecting our dad. And this is what Abraham is wrestling with. This is what he's really wrestling with. Because it comes down to this. Does Abraham's love for God outweigh his love for his son Isaac? That's what it comes down to. It's a showdown, right? Isaac versus God. Who's going to win? Whom does Abraham love more? How about for us? Who do you love more in this world? And do you love God more? This is the thrust of the passage. We will go to great lengths for our sons and daughters. We will stay up early, or stay up late, get up early. We will lose sleep, lose money. But with God, we're late to church. With God, we don't have, we don't have quiet times. With God, we curse him the second things don't go well. With, you know, we, we, with God, we show up here, but then when we're alone, we're not vulnerable with him. And so we are Abraham. We have the same struggle, the same challenge. And Jesus comes and brings the same challenge. What does he say to everyone he meets in the Gospels over and over again? Deny yourself, carry your cross, hate your mother, hate your father, hate your own life. The question is, Jesus says, don't follow me. Jesus is continually telling people to go away. 
He's not a very popular church leader. He's like, stop it. I only want you to follow me if you love me. And loving me is not, you know, speaking in tongues. It's not miracles. It's not church attendance. It's not performance. It's a, it's a truth that is shot through from our hearts and our souls. Do you really love God? And that's the challenge of this passage. Because we want to say, I love God in my heart. But I don't want to have to actually do anything. I don't want to have to actually do anything. You know, James 1.20, James talks about this, or 2.20. James says, but would you like evidence, you empty fellow? That's probably an insult. Uh, would you like evidence, you empty fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that his faith was working together with his works and his faith was perfected by works. You know, James is saying, because the church was going around, hey, keep warm and well fed, but I'm not going to actually help you. In my heart, I love you. I'm not going to actually help you. I'm not going to actually be kind. I'm not going to actually be patient. There was no actual manifestation in our behavior. And James is saying, your behavior matters. What if Abraham said, oh God, I hear you. I get what you're trying to teach me. You're trying to teach me to love you. Well, I'm not going to obey, but just trust that I really do love you in my heart. Right? It's an excuse. It's an excuse to not actually love God with our works. We've got to move forward here. I've got my timer here this time, so I'm making sure I'm not going to go on. Can you think of anything harder for a loving father than to send away his son Ishmael and then just a few years later have to kill his other son Isaac? The ambivalence of the command is exactly what makes it so difficult. This is a quote from Westerman. If, if once again, we think, well, why the command? That's what makes it so difficult. We think, well, why? You know, to test is just to see what's in somebody's heart. That's what the word means in Hebrew, just to expose somebody's heart. God wanted to see in Deuteronomy 8.2, if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 8.2, God says, I wanted to test your hearts to see if you really cared about me and if you'd really obey. And we think, well, why? You know, why? we're just so against having to do things anymore. It's so against um, our, 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 our nature. You know, obedience is not bad. Challenges are not bad. Checklists are not bad. Performance is not bad. They're bad by themselves. They're not bad, though. We can't throw them out with the bathwater. It's you know, Monique's new favorite idiom there. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, okay? We can't do that. But Kierkegaard has, uh, Soren Kierkegaard had a great quote where he said, uh, you can hang somebody from the ceiling and teach them swimming moves. Uh, you know, the backstroke and the, you know, the uh, freestyle and all these things. But if, they, if you drop them in a pool, they, they probably won't swim. Right. There's something about real life that exposes our hearts, yeah. right? There's something about real challenges, real tests. Uh, you know, and dropping somebody in a pool is the way to really know this. So we, we can't get around this part that God, that hard times will come for all of us. Some perhaps will be appointed by God and some perhaps are not from God. For God does not, not tempt. God does not try to get us to sin. That's Satan. But God does allow things to happen in our lives to refine us. He allows things because he's a loving dad. Just like Will Portillo's dad was like, go mow the lawn. It's 99 degrees, but it'll actually, it actually will help you to do this thing. It's not evil. It's good. No, it's good. To, it's helping you by actually saying, go do it. It's the same thing with God. God can say, he can tie us from the ceiling and teach us swim moves, but it's not going to actually help when it comes. We've got to actually be in the water, amen? We've got to actually know how to do this. You know, why the test? I have one quote, and then we'll transition here. 
to the second point in the rest of the, the lesson. But Calvin basically says this example, this is John Calvin. The, this example is proposed for our imitation. Whenever the Lord gives a command, many things are perpetually occurring to enfeeble our purpose. Basically, a lot of things are going through our minds. Okay? Means fail. We are destitute of counsel. All avenues seem closed. In such straits, the open way for us uh, when there is none. Or, yeah, the only remedy against despondency is to leave the event to God. When we hope for nothing from him, but what our senses can perceive, so we pay him the highest honor. In affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce in his providence. What's he saying with all those big words? He's saying, listen, when you get a command from God that you understand or you can see a way through or you know the person to get advice from or you know, you know the avenue of which to take, it's not much of an honor to God. It's the highest honor to God when you obey, when all avenues fail. There's no one to get advice from. There's no real opportunity. You, you can't see a way through, but you still obey. It pays the highest honor to God because what's it saying? I trust in you. I don't trust in the avenue. I don't trust in my ability. I don't trust in my own flesh. I don't trust in her or him, my marriage, my kids. I trust in you. That's the highest honor to God. And Abraham is given an incredible task. But how obedient is Abraham? He's like number one in the world in obedience here. He struggles with it. But my goodness, he has the knife in the air. He's about to do it. And even all it breaks your heart is Isaac is kind of, I guess, putting it together as they're walking up the mountain. And Isaac goes, okay, um, sacrifices require three things. Okay, fire, wood, and a sacrifice. We have two of those three things. Hey, Dad, where's the sacrifice? You know, and Abraham gives this answer, which could be a faithful one, or it could be like a really vague one to kind of buy himself some more time, which is God will provide the sacrifice. The Lord will provide. But Abraham is incredibly obedient. And I want to challenge us, church, to think about for ourselves, how obedient are we? How obedient are, have you been in the last week to the challenges of the Bible? Are you, are you even aware of commands in the Bible? And have you been eager to obey them? Have you challenged others to obey commands from the Bible? Have you given somebody else a command? That one we shy away from. But we shouldn't. We should be able to give each other commands. We should. We should know each other. I know a brother's simple nature enough to say, bro, you've got to get rid of the phone. Like now. Oh, Drew, you can't do that because, you know, what if? No, no, I can because I know the stuff he's been sharing with me. And that phone is just going to take him straight to hell. He's got to get rid of it. Get rid of it now. Stop talking to her now. Do this now. We can give each other commands. But how obedient have we been? Or do we find excuses? Now, you might say, okay, I see Abraham is pretty obedient. But how about this? Isaac. We haven't even mentioned Isaac as much yet. Abraham spoke to God. He had a conversation with Yahweh. That helps a little. A little. Isaac had no conversation with God. Isaac had no idea what was going on. But what, you notice it was amazing when it says Isaac was tied hands, hand and foot. Abraham's about 100 years old at this time. I think Isaac could have overpowered him. Right? Isaac allows himself to be tied. Isaac trusts his father. My goodness, to death. Isn't that incredible? 
What is Isaac allows himself to become the sacrifice. Isaac did not understand probably exactly what was going on. Isaac carried the wood on his back to his own funeral. Isaac trusted himself to his father's will. But Isaac did not have to die. Jesus did. Jesus did not understand what his father was doing when he prayed in the garden. Jesus carried his own wood on his back to his own funeral. Jesus trusted his father's will to his death. But no last second ram for Jesus. No last second salvation. No one to swoop in and say, I got you. Jesus became the sacrifice. Jesus is the more perfect Isaac. Jesus is all we needed. Jesus realized that we actually needed some some help. That we were the ones who asked our, our dad, where's the sacrifice? We've sinned. We've blown it. You've sinned. All of us deserve hell. And we ask God, God, where's the sacrifice? And God replies, I'll provide one. You know, it should have been us. You know, Jesus is not Isaac in the story. Jesus is the ram. Jesus is the one who comes in and replaces. And we hate this story because we think, child sacrifice, Isaac was innocent. Isaac did nothing wrong. Why would you kill Isaac? But we don't have audacity. We don't have indignation when we read the story of Jesus' death. We go, oh yeah, I've heard that before. Oh yeah, I know that. He died for me. Jesus died for me, I know. Jesus died for me. It hits us, glances off like BBs on a tank. But we read this and we go, oh, it's so horrible. Jesus was more innocent than Isaac could ever be. Isaac was going to sin someday. Just keep reading his life story there. He will. But Jesus would never sin. Isn't that incredible? But Jesus becomes the sacrifice, the substitution for you and for I. Isaac did not have to die, but Jesus did. No last second bailout for Jesus. Jesus had no substitute because Jesus is the substitute. Abraham, likewise, did not have to do the most painful act imaginable, even though he prepared himself to. But you know which father did have to? God. As Abraham wrestled with this struggle, Abraham fought to get out of it. Can you imagine what God did as he saw his one and only son? In fact, it's the exact same wording. My son, my only son, son whom I love. What does God say when Jesus is baptized? This is my son, my only son, whom I love. Same words. God is saying, I love my son. I love, he is amazing to me, and yet he's given up for us. Two verses to close out. John 3.16 For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that those who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's grace. Jesus takes the death we should have had and gives us forgiveness of sins. Now, we're not all automatically saved, right? We we realized earlier that obedience is an important part of this process, but it has no grounds to stand in without the grace of God. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can stand against us? Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? You know, I want to encourage you today, church, don't worry about what the command is. Worry about who's giving the command. Don't wrestle with, I don't get it, I don't know. Who's giving it? Is it in the Bible? Did God say it? Do you trust God? Do you trust your father? And here's the thing. If you don't trust God yet, how can he who gave his only son for you be worthy of your doubt? How can you doubt God after this? He's given up. He's chosen. You know, we said that Abraham's love for God had to outweigh his love for Isaac. God's love for you outweighed his love for Jesus. Isn't that amazing? God's love for you, sinful, vacillating, unpredictable, impatient, sinful, gossipy, sexual, you. God loved you more than he did his own son. If that's not enough to garner some trust, I'm not sure what is. And I want to encourage us this morning as we think about what it is to really be a father, let's not forget how amazing our true father is. Let's close out with the verse there. I didn't finish the whole passage. One more verse. Verse 14. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And for those of us this morning who still struggle, and we think, ah, this is a great story about obedience and Abraham. You know, notice Abraham did not name the mountain Abraham obeyed. And Abraham named the mountain I performed really well. And Abraham named the mountain, I was the church every single time. And Abraham named the mountain, I've been good for two weeks. And Abraham named the mountain, I'm better than she is. No. You know what he named it? The Lord provides. In Hebrew, it's Jehovah Jireh. Okay. The Lord provides. This, when we walk away from the story today, We need to trust that the Lord will provide. We won't always know the answer. We won't always be given exactly a clear perspective of why. But if we trust that the Lord provides, if we trust that our Father is amazing and encouraging and awesome and loving, the command doesn't matter. We'll do it because we have an incredible Father. We're going to close out with a song uh, called Trust and Obey. And uh, the words go like this. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet we will sit at his feet or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Amen. And to God be the glory. Happy Father's Day.